Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. Somehow this is already the 10th episode of the show and the last of the first season. I'm really excited about what we're working on for season two, so look out for that in July. As always, if you have questions or just want to chat with a bunch of other UX researchers, join us in the Slack group. You can sign up under the community tab on the website mix-methods.org. Here's this week's episode. You can either be comfortable or you can grow, but you, you really cannot do both of them at the same time. Going into this interview, I had a more buttoned-down mental image of what LinkedIn would be like. But after a lively tour, some tea, and our conversation, I left with a whole new idea of LinkedIn and what their research team was all about. Donna Driscoll and Cassie Cheney are not afraid to grow, even if it is uncomfortable for some. I had the pleasure of talking to them about a program they've created that blurs the lines a bit between research and design in order to provide their teams more research-driven insights. This is Ariel Sionflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Research Bento, Scaling Through Collaboration. Um, I'm Cassie Cheney. I'm a senior research manager uh, on the user research team at LinkedIn, and I've been here for about four years. And this is Donna Driscoll. She's a senior principal researcher on our user experience team. Donna's been here for about six and a half years. Amazing. Yeah, so today I wanted to talk about one of those programs that caught my eye, Research Bento. You guys have been, you know, talking about this a little bit. Um, you even presented about it at Interaction 2017, which was so cool. Um, so I would love to maybe just start by having, um, you know, one of you tell us what is Research Bento. Okay, what is Research Bento? Um, so... Research Bento is one of our um, signature programs here at LinkedIn, and our best programs actually come out of collaborations with uh, team members, and Research Bento was a collaboration between um, my partner in crime, Cassie Cheney, here to my right. Um, and two primary ingredients actually led to the creation of Bento, and one was that we were getting more requests to conduct research than we actually had researchers to support. Uh, and the second was that our designers actually had an appetite to conduct their own research and to learn how to do that. So with those two things in place, we actually had a perfect storm for um, Research Bento. So we often get the question of uh, why is it actually called Research Bento, <laughs> like why a food group? And at its core, um, Research Bento is a partnership between research and design. So you know, Cassie and I brainstormed a bunch of different um, names for this program. We always have fun with, like, naming our things internally. And so D DIY research obviously wasn't going to cut it because you're not doing it yourself. You're actually doing it in collaboration with a uh, designer. Um, and um, we also play with food a lot of times with uh, names for our programs. And so research to go didn't quite cut it either because it wasn't like a, a, like a little packaged meal that we, we could just, like, hand off to a designer. It was a partnership, a collaboration between the two. So bento sounded um, awesome. Uh, for one, because bentos just are super delicious, but also because um, bentos are actually composed of discrete parts that make a whole, just like a whole lunch. And so bentos actually contain all the ingredients that uh, designers would need to conduct their own research. And so that's actually how then the name and the program came about. We also have a, um, a design manager on our team who worked who worked with us. Um, we actually presented on this topic at Enterprise UX last year as well. 
prior to this, and it was more about the story and the origination of the Bento program. IXDA was actually a more hands-on workshop to train, kind of a train-the-trainer model. Mm-hmm. But he likes to say, you know, it's a Bento, not an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? Mm-hmm. So again, that food, that food analogy. But the idea is it really is contained. It is discrete. It's finite versus, um, you know, more... I think traditional research that you know researchers would lead that it can be ambiguous and big and kind of ongoing. Um, so really trying to differentiate what the purpose of this program was in relation to other types of research that happens on our team. Yeah, and you know, Donna, you just spoke a little bit to the in- or sorry, Donna, you just spoke a little bit to the inspiration for this program in terms of designers wanting to get involved, not having enough re- uh, resources to kind of meet the demands mm-hmm. of your product teams. And I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit more because, you know, I typically think of really small teams needing more of a distributed model like this, where you're actually training product teams to do their research themselves. But here at LinkedIn, you have, you know, 20 plus researchers. So I was wondering if maybe you could speak a little bit to the need that came up in terms of having so many researchers, but still wanting to kind of empower other members of the teams through this research bento model. Like what was kind of the story there? I'll start it, and Cassie can actually go into great detail about it. Um, so, although we were we finally been a, we've finally been able to scale our team, our our ratio of researchers to designers is is still quite skewed. Uh, so, there's actually much more demand uh, for research than we can even actually accommodate at the moment. And so Cassie can talk in detail about that. Yeah. And I maybe might be worth, I think, because you started with kind of a distributed model versus an embedded model. And we definitely talked to other researchers about this. It's um, as a manager on the team, I interview a lot of people as well. And so it's a really interesting kind of, I think, philosophical and organizational choice. Um, There are pros and cons to each, right? I think from our leadership standpoint, um, the idea was Embedded researchers have the ability to go very deep with teams. You are part of the team. Um, And a lot of our culture at LinkedIn is around relationships, to be honest. And so that in-person time, the relationships built are really critical, not just to, um, you know, having a great relationship with your team, but actually to the work. So um, our ability to actually drive research, create impact through our research um, is is really benefited by an embedded model. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have, you know, for researchers, we can talk about our rotational model as well, but um, the idea is, is that you're building subject matter expertise. So we cover what most people know about LinkedIn is our consumer product um, that most people would touch every day. We also have a host of B2B products. Um, and I actually work on that side of the house now. And I will say, you know, a lot of those products take a lot of um, really deep product knowledge as well as user understanding, audience mm-hmm. understanding. And it'd be hard to do that in a distributed model in a way that I think creates the impact that we're looking for. So the idea is, is that you have a researcher kind of sitting with the business partners every day and they are part and parcel and they are just as invested um, as every other single person on the team in creating successful, you know, meaningful, valuable products for our members and our customers. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, leads into my next question, which is what are the type of projects or the methods where you're like, oh, yeah, research bento is the appropriate, you know, method for us to get this project done versus something that's more in depth, like what you were just talking about. So um, when we started scoping this, this as a program, Donna and I spent a lot of time talking about this because I think it's one that's easy 
it's easy to um, misinterpret as something that's just for everything at every part of the product development lifecycle. And I think that's actually the caution. We would say it's not. Um, so the way we've positioned this is it's ideal, and especially because it's tied to designer-led research, um, it tends to be best served for these kind of very discrete, finite, contained, what we call micro-research projects that tend to focus on like um, early design explorations, design concept testing, and then interaction and usability testing. So you can imagine that's kind of later in the development cycle than some maybe very discovery or exploratory oriented research. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk about why we think it's better for the end cycles rather than those early cycles? Yeah, so Obendo isn't isn't ideal, for example, for a large-scale redesign or if you're doing early inspiration, early, excuse me, early exploration into um, a brand new business concept or a business product. Mm -hmm. um, it's there's a lot, basically, you know, when Cassie and I were talking about, okay, well, what would be ideal for this type of a program? Um, those types of projects, early explorations, redesigns, the scale is is quite large, and they're actually, um, they span quite a bit of time. And Research Bento, to Cassie's point, is, is actually just kind of like a, a pop-in, pop-out type of a model, where it's like very discreet, um, self-contained. If you're doing a large-scale uh, exploration or a redesign, that actually is not the case. Um, it spans multiple cycles. There are many phases to it. It's feasible that a designer could actually do a Bento as part of a redesign, but as a, like a larger-scale effort, just to actually look at like one specific element. But it wouldn't be ideal for them for the entire redesign. Mm -hmm. um, so we made these delineations so that um, when our designers come to us with requests to, to do a bento, that they actually had some gui guidance around, okay, what would be appropriate for them to take on? Because the other thing, going back to the, the quote around, it's a bento, not an all-you-can-eat buffet, there's actually... Bentos actually sound, even though we, we talk about them as contained and, and smaller in, in unit, uh, they're an investment of time. And so we, we really stress that to designers. I think that's probably the most important thing to, to stress to them when, when they actually come with a request to, to do one. So, you know, we've actually estimated it, and it's, it's typically around three to four days over the course of three to four weeks. And so it's actually quite an investment of time because they're doing all phases of the research just like a researcher would. And so um, and they're paired with a researcher that guides them through that process. But, again, this is in addition to the design work that they're already doing. Um, so we always, you know, make sure that they actually know like what they're taking on because one of our culture values, uh, within the research team is rigor and we don't want to lose that rigor. And so if we were simply to say, okay, here's a, a DIY, DIY kit and just throw it over the fence, they wouldn't have any of that guidance. They wouldn't get any help drafting their interview guide. They wouldn't even have any help actually crafting, like actually solidifying what is it What's the problem that they're trying to solve? What is the what is it? What are they trying to get to? Oftentimes, that's actually difficult in itself, um, and just so having someone actually to be a thought partner through that process this is why we actually pair a researcher with a designer. Yeah, so I would love to hear. You know, you have a designer. Like, how how does the process work when they decide? Oh, I really want to do a research bento. Do they just send an email, or like, how do they kick it off? And then, you know, what happens? Yeah, so I can talk about that a little bit. Um, and I think this is an, ev an evolution of the model that's that's been interesting to watch as we, you know, you programmatize something, we pilot it, and then we kind of roll it out across our our team. What's happened, um, which is great for me, uh, since I'm not an actually embedded researcher anymore myself, is the requests come to me uh, or through my team, somebody on my team. And we basically sit down um, and talk to the designer <clears throat> and usually their stakeholder partners. So it could be the product manager or the product marketing manager, um, other, others who are interested in the research. 
but typically it's at least the um, designer and the product manager. And we talk about what is it they're trying to do? What are the key questions they're trying to answer? And basically as part, and that's true, by the way, of every single research project that comes through our team. So I'm doing that for all the research that's asked. And part of my intake process is then to assess, you know, if, if the person on the embedded researcher on my team is uh, working on another project right now or is tasked for something, again, kind of more explorational or um, more strategically focused, bigger b- blue sky thinking, um, we would try to assess is this request a candidate for a bento. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's helpful because I worked with Donna on creating this as a program. Uh, I feel very comfortable assessing kind of what what are the types of questions that we think this is well suited for and then trying to help designers scope an appropriate study to support that. Um, and that would be and it's a lot of conversation back and forth, to be honest. So is it an email exchange or like so a meeting it, where you're? Sitting? Yeah, it's a meeting. Okay. So they start as an email. Hey, I'm interested in doing I'm interested in doing a bento on X. Yeah. Right? Like, great. Let's grab a half an hour and just kind of talk about the scale and scope. Mm-hmm. My experience is email can do a lot but I think that actual when we get to how would you execute a project you can't it's really hard to do that over email so it's you know we try to just do that in a conversation whether that's in person or we have all this remote technology we can do um, and just really try to deeply understand what are the types of questions they're trying to answer and sometimes we might even start to look at the designs to understand um, where where are they at in their kind of evaluation process. Yeah. So what would be the types of questions we think or we'd see that they would want to explore? Um, a lot of the designers on our team, are they, there's a ton of appetite, but they actually haven't done research themselves. Mm-hmm. So they've sat with our team and observed a lot of research. They're very, like all of us, very curious, very human-centered. They really want to do right by the end user of the product. Um, so they're naturally very empathetic and they're very thoughtful about the types of questions. And then, you know, it's really just us helping them frame it. Um, and imagine, you know, you're a researcher, like how do you create a flow, right? And so these are like nuances to our discipline that I think sound really easy from the outside, but it's actually a skill and a technique that we can help them with. Yeah. So, so what's the next step? Like you have this conversation, you have this meeting, you decide, you know, this actually is a great candidate for a research bento. What happens next? Yeah. Do you want me to keep going? I, I execute a lot of these. So, oh, okay, um, yeah. So what happens next is um, as part of the bento, maybe we should take a step back and talk about the ingredients. Do you want to kind yeah. of talk about the ingredients? Yeah, I can talk about second? the ingredients. Um, I think I can do these from memory, perhaps. <laughs> we'll give it a shot. Um, so, you know, part going back to the the name of a, a, a bento and actually having component parts, um, we did this intentionally so that designers could actually keep track of what it, what, all the things that they would actually need to do as part of this project. So, you know, what do you fundamentally need for any body of research? You need people. Um, so you need access to them. So, um, so just an actual space to conduct that research. Uh, in, an NDA, so a non-disclosure agreement, actually comes uh, with all of the research that we do, especially because we're showing them designs that are actually not in product. Uh, incentives, so um, for participating in the research itself. Um, and then guidance. And this is the piece uh, that's the, you know, the, the way the tagline for Research Bento is um, designer-led research-supported projects. And that's intentional because they're always pa- you're always paired with a researcher because even though we give you those component parts, the parts that you actually need us in are in the creation of that interview guide and figuring out how to actually frame the questions that you want to ask um, and then also help with the analysis. So if you do this research and if you've not done research before, it's like, okay, well, this is what I learned, but I don't know how to make sense of it. So they actually work with us to kind of like, okay, this is what we learned. What does this mean? How would I apply this uh, going forward? Um, so I think those are the the five component pieces of uh, bento. Did I get those right, Cassie? 
Did I yeah. miss one? I think you didn't call it the interview guide specifically, but that's yeah. actually probably where we spend the most of our time, yes. to be really honest. So um, from a logistical standpoint, those are, yeah, those are all the pieces. And some of those are, you know, super, that's, you know, I I pull a set of, um, we use Amazon gift codes for incentives. So I pull a set of codes for them. And I just, I have a template that I give to them. The time in the lab, I'm booking, I'm literally going in like, tell me when you want a research week. I will hold the time for you. When you start booking actual participants, we'll do that. The access to participants um, is interesting. So that's going through my team. As we reach out to our members and our customers, we um, we are basically peeling off a subset of the customer type or the member type that we think will best serve the research that they're trying to conduct um, and grant them access so that they can do the outreach. We provide them email templates to how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, as we think about outreach to our customers as a touch point of our brand, we want to be really thoughtful about kind of crafting that in a way that feels welcoming and inviting. Um, so that's another piece that we might do. The interview discussion guide is actually the part that takes probably the most time. Um, and that tends to be a back and forth. So we talked about like the initial kickoff might be the email or the email request. We have this intake meeting. I basically say, great, let's do it. Um, I actually have an email that then outlines kind of the, the parts that we just talked about, the gift codes, the NDA link, all of that, get in touch with our lab coordinators to learn how to use this equipment. So there's a little bit of um, training up to do. And then I ask them to think about, so usually they come with some key questions and then we'll show them some examples of um, interview guides that are in line with the type of research they're trying to do. So if it's design concept testing, we have lots of examples of great discussion guides um, that they can leverage. Mm -hmm. So they're not working from scratch entirely. There's a lot of inspiration we can give them. Um, and then I ask them to put that together and then we meet again and I'll review it with them. And that is probably the thing that takes the longest time. So kind of going back and forth, trying to really make sure. I think one of the other things around, you know, and I think of them as novice researchers at this point, if you haven't done research before, is time allocation. So again, trying to keep this very contained and discreet and focused. I also am trying to keep the time constrained and focused. In terms of the time that they spend yep. with the participant? Yeah. So we try to keep them to about an hour. We really recommend they keep them to a 60-minute interview. A lot of our interviews could be 90 minutes to two hours, to be honest. Um, so, But for the nature of the type of research they're doing and also the fact that they haven't done this before, 60 minutes is a long time. Yeah. So um, trying to keep them really mindful of how to... How, when their question sets are starting to kind of bleed over, I've sco I mean, I've been a researcher for a very long time, so I, I have good sense of time allocation at this point, and just really trying to give them feedback on let's focus here. Is this necessary? When we do concept testing, um, a lot of the designers are very excited, and they'll come with five to eight concepts they want to go through with a participant, and that's just not feasible, right? Mm -hmm. So really trying to get them to focus on what are the hypotheses they're looking to test or what are, what are the, what's the type of feedback um, that they're really looking to answer that's going to help them make the decision, yeah. right? Because at the end of the day, we're trying to solve, you know, answer a set of questions or solve a problem, right? Um, so really trying to get them back to that point. Do you then actually go, th you know, like you, you put together this interview guide together, you get it really focused. They've never done an interview though before. And obviously that is a very, you yeah. know, unique skill set. Do you actually go through an interview with them or like how do you get to the point where you feel comfortable kind of putting them in a room with the participant? Yeah. So the intent is, um, and we, we should talk about what are the I think later on we'll talk about what are some of the optimizations you've made, but maybe mm -hmm. this is a good point to talk about it now. I think what I've observed uh, so we've been doing this for about a year and a half now. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I would say that my observation is this scenario works best when we have designers who've actually gone through the research process before. So they've observed us do research. They understand. They've they've kind of learned a little bit about the dialogue and the way the dialogue is happening. So they have like a uh, a pattern match, a mental to, model, yeah, yeah, to work from, right? So um, I think it's a little bit harder to help people who are brand new to LinkedIn and brand new to research with a program like this. Like we'd really like them to actually see a great model of research first before they kind of take this on themselves. Um, so, but I will say that when I'm working with someone, I will. I will kind of play the role. So for key questions, like I tend to play out the like um, a mock interview a little bit with them. Um, but generally, they they go into the research themselves, and then either me or somebody from my team will observe. And the idea is, is to provide them feedback. So at least for the first session, we're committed to having somebody from our team kind of sit and observe and then provide concrete feedback on interview style and technique at that point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things that you observe from novice researchers uh, – not letting the time breathe, you know, kind of jumping in before a little too early, right? Or um, over-explaining something rather than letting the person tell you they're having trouble understanding, right? Yeah, leading so, the witness. Yeah, leading the witness, right? So we'll we'll try to give them some guidance on that. Um, you know, I think we we talked earlier about how we archive all of our information here. We have an entire wiki for them that has all this documentation on how to ask good questions, you know, how to think about the conversation they're going to have. And I would say that that's actually one of the crucial pieces of the um, setting them up for success and doing an interview for the first time. To Cassie's point, not only having them observe research that we've done so they can model that, um, but also how do you actually take a question, a closed-end question, and turn it into an open-ended question? So I spent a lot of time actually crafting, like, these are examples of, of open-ended questions, those that typically begin with like when and how and tell me more that open and welcome to, that open up that conversation because what they'll typically ask is do you are you could you which and just ends up with a yes or no answer um, and so sometimes actually just even seeing examples of what those questions actually would be um, they actually get a lot of benefit from that because they can actually re- reframe the way that they're actually thinking about how they would approach that conversation and then since they're doing you know the succession of them they actually see improvements in themselves over time yeah but there are things that um are difficult to overcome. Um, you know, one of them is like jumping in too early because people are really you feel awkward because yeah, of the silence. Yeah, people yeah, feel that's very, a big very skill, uncomfortable. Just being able to pause. Yeah, so I've actually done some training. I do some best practices workshop workshops with our um, team, and I did one on interview interview skills and like how to like hone and develop them. And one of them um, actually is I call it the pregnant pause, and because it's so like it lasts a really long time and it's really uncomfortable. Um, and uh, one of the members of my team always uh, has the new researchers that tend to actually jump in a little bit early, like watch one of the interviews that I did where it's, it's pretty extreme. Or it's almost to the point of being uncomfortable. But people forget that, you know, it takes time to process information. And when you're asked a question, it's like you, you can't access it immediately. It takes a moment. And actually, if you let it breathe and give it time, people will actually think even further about it than before you would jump in naturally. And so I think that that's just something that they need to develop over time. But um, I think that that's the, the benefit of the program is that um, you can be a designer who not only, is, you don't have to only do it a one bento, you can actually continually do this. Oh um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I would imagine that like once someone's done one bento, you'd be like, please. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know? so that's actually where the leverage comes in. So we've talked a lot so far about scale. So the intent of the program was really to help our team extend its reach. The leverage comes in in a huge way where we've actually started training. I mean, so it's a great empowerment model for design, which is, uh, and we should talk about the side benefit, the unanticipated benefit of like empowering designers. It's just been hugely um, 
great to watch um, designers really grow and um, how our, so I'll just say it now. So our design team, um, so part of our practice here is we have something called deep dives um, where our design team is asked to, you know, show their work and it's open, open format and people give feedback on the work. Um, When they've done a research bento as part of their design process, um, the, just the confidence that you see in the designers really taking form is just so, it's so rewarding, honestly, as like a researcher. Um, they are very clear on the decisions that they've made and why, and they have feedback to support it. It's not just, it's not just their gut anymore or their assumption about the user. It's really, I've gotten feedback on this and this is why I've made the decision that I've made. Um, and so that's super empowering to see just all the way around. Um, and it's been really great for their growth as well. So in this in this model of where we've now kind of gotten you up to speed on how to do this, the next time you want to do one, the work for me as a support as a supporter is much diminished. You kind of know what you've signed up for. You understand how the process works, um, and so we have a few a few designers who've done multiple bentos, um, which is fantastic on multiple levels. Most of which is they know how to do it. So so we don't have to provide all that guidance and support that Donna was talking about up front. Like, you know the drill. So now you're coming in where we focus is around crafting the discussion guide, right? And if there are um, key key new f- new phases in the process where you haven't done this before. So, for instance, if you were looking really more at usability at this point, and that's really different than now um, design exploration, right? So it's a different phase of the research. And how would you tweak, how would you tweak the conversation that you're having, right? That that is incredible leverage, um, you know, for us as a research team, but also for their growth and their development um, of really feeling just yeah, super empowered to kind of take it on and go do it again, right? And it's it's um, and we give them a sticker, so you'll see on our part of the part of the benefit we got these <laughs> with our logo. Um, but it actually is it's it's one of those small gamification things that's been really cool because it's it's this token, right? And it stands out of like oh you've so you've taken this on, yeah. yeah. Um, and we give it to the whole team who's participated. So you know we have a designer, but we didn't really talk about kind of how we encourage them to collaborate with their partners. But I think you just called that out. And that is actually fundamental. I, we won't set up a designer to go do this by themselves. It's, yeah. actually, it's not going to work. I'm curious what the role of, you know, because it sounds like it, it is the, it's designer led with, you know, research supported. And that um, to me is a little bit surprising because I would imagine that it would typically be like product manager led and then designer and developer observing or something. But yeah, I would love to hear more specifically like, the designers in here actually leading the interview and, you know, the product manager and developer observing and why that's the kind of, you know, dynamic that you guys chose? Um, That's a great question, actually. Um, So although it's designer-led research supported, to your point, the PM, the PMM, the engineering um, lead are involved in the project. Um, Research for us at LinkedIn is always um, collaborative. We're extremely transparent. We actually want our product partners. We actually we talk about having them come on the journey with us. So everything that we do, they come on the entire journey with us. Often to the point of even, um, uh, you know, some companies you'll actually just get an invitation to participate in research. We actually like to bring people in much earlier than that, even in the uh, selection of actually who's coming in and what we're going to talk about and reviewing that together as a team. So everything is very team-based. It just happens to be designer-led because ultimately at the end of the day, the designer will be iterating on that design, even though they're going to be having discussions about what it all means together as a team. Yeah. How did the, I'm curious how the product manager kind of reacted to that decision from the research team. 
That's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, I don't get a, a lot of feedback about it. I think because we 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 had a very clear point of view about how this needed to work. Mm-hmm. Um, we are part of the user experience design team. So user experience research is under the umbrella of the UED team at LinkedIn. So design are our primary partners. Um, our other partners are absolutely key. We we obviously would not create the impact and the the value add that we would like to see if we if they're not engaged. But um, this program in particular was targeted at exactly like the design questions. Um, to be honest, I have a lot of product managers request research. Uh, and so they're coming with their designers in partnership because again, obviously they can't really sign up the designer to do this if they're not, you know, confident enough or they're not, doesn't have the bandwidth to do it. So it's, that's definitely, um, the designer really has to want to do it because it is, it is a, a pretty big investment of their time, yeah. but I've never actually had a product manager ask to do one. So oh, interesting. I think that's probably because, um, I don't know. I, I think designers here, it's very clear when we when we're doing this kind of research, it really is part and parcel of like design expertise. They they are the key question. They'll contribute questions. They want to be part of the process. But it really is like design's domain expertise to drive it. Yeah. Right. And I think the other thing is really simply bandwidth. I mean, product managers have a lot to do. So I don't think there's any and they have conversations so on the monetized side of the house for sure. They're having conversations with their customers all of the time. So they might come to us when we engage in a project like this with a lot of hypotheses based on the conversations they've they've had with customers um, that are um, less structured, more kind of open-ended exploratory questions that they have. When we get to this phase, it's you know we're trying to actually start looking for patterns, right? We're looking for meaningful behaviors across a group of people, not just the one-off like you know, conversation that you had last week with somebody in sales, right? So I think it's a really different ask. um, And I don't see product managers eagerly asking to sign up for it. Um, And my guess is because it's a bandwidth issue. So they definitely want to be involved. And I think that's that is part of our culture. I will say kind of maybe going back to the the difference between an embedded model and a distributed model. I think that's also part of our philosophy around what makes an embedded model really impactful. Um, If the team is not brought along, and they're not brought in early and often, you can imagine, um, and I'm, I came from an agency world, you can imagine a model where research feels dropped off. So we were talking earlier about researchers kind of um, owning the knowledge and not sharing the knowledge. I, this is the intent is really like we are part, we are part of the journey. We are not an impediment to the journey. We want you to have the insight. We want you to do something with it. Um, so I think that's just a really different philosophical stance around and why we really actively engage our partners rather than we're going to go do research in a vacuum and then drop off results for you to do something with. We just, I, we just know that that is not going to create meaningful impact from the insights. Yeah. I, I mean, and I love this model partially because I mean, one of the things like when you get into this space that you find is the more ownership that the product team has when it comes to research, the more successful your research is going to be. Right. And so I think it's, I think it's, you know, really amazing to actually create this process where you facilitate the designer to become, you know, an owner of this research and they're the ones who are presenting it and they're the ones who are, you know, really excited about their findings, especially because I think it also, you know, in terms of the product manager, designer, developer, like in terms of that whole dynamic, I think it's great to 
um, you know, empower the designer with that same knowledge. Because I think sometimes it gets siloed either with the researcher or the product manager or, you know, whoever in the team. And so I think this is like a great way for an equalizer for the team where it's like we all know who we're building this for and we've talked to them. And, you know, Jared Spool says the best product teams are in front of customers a certain amount of hours every, you know, however many weeks. Um, And so I think it's great that, you know, you are empowering designers because I can't think of many methods that I've heard of or, you know, programs like this that specifically are designer led, Mm -hmm. you know, and so I think it's really unique in that way. And I also want to touch upon something that um, Cassie mentioned about um, when the designers actually present an iteration of their design after they've done their own research, that level of confidence that they they feel in their design, because if they don't have access to research, either research that, research that we've done or that they've actually done on their own, you can imagine the amount of time that they're actually spending almost second-guessing or question questioning decisions that they're actually making about the design, like, will this work? Is this the right approach? You know what I mean? Is this the right direction to go into? So all of that goes away. All the time that would have been spent asking those questions of oneself actually go away because you actually are able to ask you know, the consumer of your product. So I think it actually builds that confidence in them as well. Um, And this, this is their area of expertise. So, um, you know, going back to that question of like, you know, who should actually lead this, like, at least in in my point of view, it should definitely be the designer, because at the end of the day, it actually, they are, they own that design. I mean, is it a collaborative effort to get there? Definitely. But they're a designer. That's what they're skilled in doing is actually creating like a design solution to a problem. Um, So this is just sort of, um, allowing for that piece that sometimes they don't get to do more because of a lack of time than a lack of desire. Yeah. And I think just to, this will be, this obviously is a a passionate area for us. Um, I think that the authenticity of the user voice, if we, if we go back to like, you know, for our design team, we very much embody user-centered design. That is, I I think actually, I mean, I, I know a lot of people say that, but I think like that is what, if you look at like the different, um, we talk about a three-legged stool a lot. But if you think about like what the different functions bring to the table um, and you think about what's technically feasible and what's best for the business, you know, design is really on the hook for like what is the best thing for the end user of the product, right? We want them to be very clear and very, again, empowered, I guess is the word, um, to feel like they own the authentic voice of the people they're building for. So again, on the consumer side of the house, we're all users of consumer products. So your hypotheses might be stronger about what you think people want. And you go into that world really clear, maybe clear headed. I don't know. Just let's say, I think when you come to the monetized side of the house or experiences that touch both sides of a marketplace, you get into some really interesting territory because it's not always that clear. And I'm not the end user. So who am I building this for? So I sit on the side um, where our recruiter product lives. 98% of us are not recruiters. No one on that design team has been a recruiter. How will you build a really meaningful, um, impactful, valuable, and it's a tool, by the way, it's not a lean back consumption experience. It's a workflow tool that's going to help these people really be efficient and do their job, you know. 
Um, so how do we help them with that? Right. I think that's just a really different type of question. Um, and I think that we're, you know, that from our perspective, the design team is uniquely situated to answer those types of questions. They're responsible for those types of questions. Um, I think we all try to come to the table with a with an understanding of the other legs, right? What the t what's technically feasible, what's best for our business, but that that balance of then, but what's also best for our users, and how do we how do we bring that together in a place that then creates an amazing product? Yeah. Well, and I would love to hear. You've been doing this now for a year and a half with these designers, with these researchers. What are, you know, kind of the learnings over the last year and a half? How have researchers reacted to it? Like, do they like it? Do they feel a little bit like, oh, this is my territory? Um, obviously, we've spoken a little bit already to how the designers have reacted to it, but I would love to kind of hear what the researcher response has been. Can I talk about my example? Yeah, it's a great example. <laughs> so in that same business, in our talent solutions business, um, and I told this story at IXCA, but I love this story. The design manager, so I'm aligned to the design managers on each of the teams that I that I work with. Um, that design manager came to me, and it was the beginning of Q1, and we were looking at all the research asks. And I think the ratio at that time, going back to ratios and scale, I have one researcher for, at the time, I think there were 12 product managers, and we have about a 10 or 11 designers at that point. 18 research asks for one quarter for one researcher. It's just not feasible, right? It's just not possible. I think our researchers, um, we all want to give people what they want. We we are we want to help people. That's kind of we are a service organization. So um, the idea that we are not actually being able to deliver for everyone is painful, right? To be honest. So this model, our team has eaten up like cake. We love this model because it's really, again, it's really allowed us eaten to- Eaten up like a bento? Yeah, like a bento. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I said that all wrong. <laughs> wrong food group. One, one compartment of the bento. Um, but it's really allowed us to, to extend our reach in really meaningful ways. So one of the, one of the slides that I showed at the at the IXDA workshop that we did, where all the designers, this was at the end of 2016, all the designers that we had supported through Bento. And I think we were at about 20 to 22 at that point. And if you think about, like, it's not just the people that we're supporting and empowering to do designer-led research. That's amazing in and of itself. If you think about all the products that would not have gotten research otherwise, that is hugely meaningful to us as a team, right? That's, that's, we can't beat that. So, um, especially for short-term scale solutions, like how, how do we how do we cover that much more ground? Like immediately, there's we have no better solution for that today than to hire X many more researchers, which we're just not resourced to do today. So our team has really loved it. Um, I think one of the observations we've made as a as a leadership team is that um, the reason the bentos happen is because our embedded researchers are are booked up. So they are maxed out on other projects. The timing doesn't quite work. It's not a high priority project, but it's still really important to get some feedback on and the designers want to do it. And so the design, the, the research managers are actually the one often supporting the bentos. So as a, as a manager, as I think I mentioned earlier, I don't, I don't get to do any individual contributor work really anymore. Um, and I'm a researcher at heart as well. So it's actually been great. Um, you know, I think for us to still keep really close to kind of the asks on the ground and, and how research can be extended. Um, and I think there's then this ownership of like the insights need to fold back into what we're learning as a team. So, you know, we are positioned to basically collect the research back into the fold of um, our institutional knowledge. Whereas I think 
you know, the designers are distributed into the teams and that's great. It helps with that specific project. But as a team, we're also looking for like themes, you know, um, patterns across many, many cycles of research. So, you know, the, the research managers and the more senior staff on our team are uniquely situated to actually kind of, kind of from an end to end cycle, pull that, those insights back into the collective knowledge that we have. Yeah. So what would you recommend for someone who is listening to this and they're thinking, cool, what, like, how do I, how do I start doing this in my organization? That's a good one. Um, so we, Kathy and I were talking about this actually before you came it worked really well for us for the two reasons that I gave, that there were more asks than there there were researchers to actually support it, and then there was appetite. So I think you actually, you need both of those to, to actually make it work. So this could actually work in a startup if you're the only researcher. Um, when we gave our talk, we gave a presentation of this at uh, a meetup, enterprise meetup in San Francisco last year, and we had a, a lot of the audience members were actually uh, individual researchers in startups that were really interested in, in and figuring out how, how do I do this within my own organization and, and who can I leverage? So there's got to be that appetite, right? So like you, you need at least to start with a researcher. So I think it probably would not really fly if you didn't have someone that had a research background that could that actually start start this. So let's say that you have one. Um, but then you can actually partner with another person within your organization to actually train them to do to do this, to establish what Cassie just talked about, which is actually to scale. So, you know, as an individual researcher in a startup, which I've been, you know, you get a ton of asks and you have to basically prioritize them and then you, everything below that line gets cut. So with a model like this, if you actually train another person to do it, that line actually goes a little bit lower and you can maybe take on another project or maybe another two. Um, but it also works in larger scale organizations too that just have research teams that aren't at the, at the ratio to actually support all the asks that are coming in. And that's actually why it still works at LinkedIn, even though we've been able to scale our team to the 20-something the that we are now, we still have many more asks than we're, we're actually able to support. So this is why this model works really well even in a 10,000-person organization. So it can work from a startup with just a sole researcher all the way to an organization at scale when you just don't have a research team at the ratio to help scale. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already, join us for more UX research conversation in the Slack group. You can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mix-methods.org. For my favorite UX research articles and mixed methods announcements, follow us on Twitter. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, who mixed and edited this episode, and Laura Levitt, who creates all of our graphics. See you next season.